Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. Good morning to every campus and from wherever you're watching online. Today is an exciting day because today we embark on a new series, which is a study in the book of 1 John. It's going to be fantastic. We're doing six weeks in this book and it's a really tiny book. So you might say, how on earth are we going to stretch out it to six weeks, Bron? Well, in 1985, John Piper spent 21 weeks in the book of 1 John. So in fact, we are moving through 1 John at breakneck speed. Put on your seatbelt. Here we go. You know, we're doing it in three ways. Our weekend messages will be in a certain topic uh, from the passage that we'll be examining throughout the week, verse by verse. And also, not only that, they'll be different in every location, but also uh, midweek we'll have going deeper studies which are based on that same passage, but a different section. Also, in addition to that, we'll have your daily devotion. So this time, 40 days in the book of 1 John is a great time to set up a habit that will set you up actually for the rest of your life. Daily time in the Word of God and daily time in prayer. All this will be accessible on the website, on the app, on social media. You will be able to find a way to access it if you can't speak to your location pastor and they would love to help you and help you get the most out of the book of 1 John. So firstly, who wrote 1 John? Well, it's one of two letters in the New Testament that don't directly state who wrote them and who they're written to, just this and Hebrews. And so people have suggested, well, that must mean that it's written to the Catholic Church, not the big C Catholic Church, but the little c, meaning all embracing the wider church. And it's true because it's written for us, but at the time it was written for a specific group of people, which you can see upon reading. There's specific issues that are being addressed. And so uh, this is written in in a pastoral tone, loving and kind. They do get a little bit feisty when they have to bring correction, but it's not super disputatious or anything like that. It's more coming alongside and and, and compelling and come on guys, let's do this. Let's do this the way that Jesus wanted us to do it. It's encouraging and you're going to get so much encouragement out of it. And traditionally, it's accepted that it was written by the Apostle John. Some people say, well, no, there's too many differences between the Gospel of John and then this epistle and and the others. But the early church fathers like Tertullian and Papias of Hierapolis, Clement of Alexandria and Arrhenius of Lyon, they all accepted that the same author wrote the Gospel of John, uh, the first letter of John, the second letter of John and the third letter of John and Revelations. Um, It's um, thought, well, you know, what about the differences? But there's so many similarities and of syntax and subject matter, even more so than the book of Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, which are clearly stated to be written by the same person. And it's an eyewitness account. And this is powerful. They're saying we were there. We heard the teachings of Jesus firsthand. And now we want to proclaim them to you. This is powerful stuff. Uh, How is it relevant to us today in the 21st century? Let me read you what John Stott said. This is powerful. He says, in our world, everything is changing. Nothing is stable. New nations are birthed. Social and political climates are ever evolving. And he says that um, this external instability are reflected in the world of the mind and the spirit. Even the Christian church, which has received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, which says that they're they're claiming the one who are proclaiming the one who was the same yesterday, today and forever. uh, Now often, and, and you know this is true, now often speaks its message softly, shyly and without conviction. Ouch. Against this backdrop, 
To read the letters of John is to enter another world altogether. For its marks are assurance, confidence and boldness, certainty about Christ, certainty about eternal life. Come on, who doesn't want some of that certainty in a world that is so uncertain and to claim back that boldness, confidence to speak and boldly proclaim the word of God and the truth in the uncertain world that we live in. We're going to get so much out of this. And the overarching theme of 1 John is what this guy needs to hear. Um, what's the pay? Love. Just love. Car? How about a car? Love. Just love. Ah, Pastor Bronnie Bennell. <laughs> love her so much. Uh, well, my name is Trish. I'm one of the pastors here and part of the preaching team. And, um, you know, each one of our services is unique in style, but it's always singular in purpose. And that is getting Jesus known in order to draw seekers and build believers. So here in the chapel service, we work through a passage. We spend five minutes reflecting on that. So we'll do that in just a moment. And then we launch into how that outworks in our life. And then directly apply it through either Q&A or an interview or table discussions or a panel or maybe a meditation. So it's really great. I'm really glad you're here. Um, and it's something different every week. So keep on coming. Uh, so let's read through this passage and we're going to stop and make observations as we go. So verse number one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. So this is like massive already. <laughs> this verse is pregnant with power, with purpose and with promise. You know, maybe you're here because you were invited today or um, maybe you're just curious. If that's you, you need to know that um, Christians don't follow Jesus, who's a, we don't consider him a good man who walked the earth 2,000 years ago, who set a really lovely example. No, we are talking about the ancient of days, the ancient of days, that which was from the beginning, like the beginning, beginning, before the beginning. <laughs> and this is actually a hard concept for us as rational, Western, linear thinking people to wrap our heads around, like, well... What was before that? Well, there was, there was God. Yeah, but who made God? Nope, there was just God. Uh, <laughs> he who was and is and is to come outside time and space, outside our concepts of that and our experience of that. And you might think to yourself, nope, I can't understand it all. And I refuse to engage with it if I can't understand it. Well, you know what? That's why it's called faith. That's why it's called faith rather than understanding. And it's okay. You're welcome here while you wrestle and um, ask whatever questions you want. But if you're expecting to get them all answered, well, um, I've been at this for about 25 years. That number is like someone's entire lifetime. <laughs> um, but I have been at this for a quarter of a century and still I don't have them all answered. But I have grown in faith. And yes, understanding too, but grown in my faith rather than diminished, right? So feel free to hang in there and engage in the process and engage in the wrestle. The wrestle is good. So this first verse, we're just going to keep it up on the screen. Thanks, Bells. Um, the first verse smacks of the Gospel of John, which is what Bron was talking about in that video. 
John 1.1, as in the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we're talking about Jesus, who's the Word of life. And John is saying here, we saw him. We actually saw him. We looked at him. We touched him. And you might be like, especially this year, you might be like, ew, why are they talking about touching? (laughs) And do people touch people? But this is talking about the risen Christ who actually condescended to allow them to put their fingers in the holes in his hands, in the holes in his hands and into where the spear had busted his side so that they could testify about his resurrection. They have seen, they have known, they have touched the living Christ. And you might think, well, why doesn't he just do that for all of us? That would be a little easier to just get our heads around this and then we'd be sure and it'd be great and it'd be easier. But Jesus himself said, blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. You know, we we have a greater blessing in that. So I'm claiming that blessing. And unless you've seen him, you can too. Okay, verse two. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So from the outset, John is saying, this is more than about us. It's more than about us guys who actually got to see him. This is about the life that flows from him. And we need to proclaim it. We need to keep talking about it. Verse 3 to 4. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we write this to make our joy complete. Now, some versions say your joy. Some say our joy. But regardless, joy is completed as he is proclaimed, as he is witness to, and as the beautiful spiritual fellowship flows between us and between him. You know, some love to use the symbol of the cross as a picture of that, of that vertical fellowship and the lateral fellowship. And, and that, sounds like, um, that sounds like joy would be full and complete when it's working together. Verse number five. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. Now, at first glance that can feel probably a little bit confronting because such a holy, incredible, blameless God, that seems very far away from our dirt, (laughs) from our dirty experience, from my obvious fallibility, um, from my not very holiness. And sometimes he gets a glimpse of the not very holy at all. And whether in traffic or at the kids or at the debate on the TV. (laughs) So all of a sudden, God can maybe in those moments seem unapproachable if we view him that way. And for me to assume that he might be sounds awfully proud on my part. But we are about to head into three but statements, and these are so powerful. And they're going to change our opinion of that. So here we go. This is the first one. It's found in verses 6 and 7. If we proclaim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. I'm just going to go straight into the second 
but verse, that sounds bad, (laughs) verses 8 and 9. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, but... If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then the third one is found in verses 10 through to chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Wow. Okay. But let's just get to the the commonalities of these but statements. They all start with, if we claim, and then they go on to say something along the lines of, we claim to have no sin. So it appears that self-righteousness was an issue for these guys. So let me ask you, is it an issue for you? Is it an issue for you? Do you claim that you're without sin? If someone gives you a pattern of prayer and says, you know, um, adore him and then maybe confess your sins and then um, ask for things, if, the, if you follow that pattern, do you struggle when you get to confession? Are you like, oh, I'm, I'm doing okay? I'm all right. Um, so is, is this an issue for you? Do you claim to be without sin? Because John is saying, if you, um, if you like that claim, you are deceived. You're a liar or you're making him a liar. Because he says that we have sin. So we really need to come to grips with the fact that we sin. We get it wrong. We fall short of the holy standard. And if we can acknowledge that, there clearly is another freedom that comes because it says if we don't acknowledge that, we lie. So clearly, if we do acknowledge that, we speak truth. And the fact is in these but statements that if we can acknowledge it, then we can access the purifying that he gives, the forgiveness that he offers and the advocacy that he promises. The righteous one, it's an interesting title, Um, those among the audience to whom this letter was written would have read out that they they would be from Jewish descent that would have recognized the title straight away. So Pharaoh asked Moses and Aaron to pray to him, to the righteous one. Proverbs speaks of him in the wisdom literature, the righteous one. And in the prophetic literature in Isaiah, the righteous one is also referenced there. In Acts, those Jewish-born church leaders have invoked his name before they've been dragged before their Jewish brothers, the righteous one. This was the name of God Almighty. And it was always used in reference to justice. And it's now applied to Jesus Christ, again, in reference to justice as he's both our defense and has carried the justice of God in himself on behalf of us and our sins. How incredible is that? How incredible is that? But do you see we can't access that, that exacted justice um, or access his defense if we don't acknowledge that we have sinned? We, we don't even turn up to the courthouse. Otherwise, we're just entering a false claim of not guilty. Not guilty, or I didn't mean it, doesn't count, it's it's fine. 
So better to acknowledge the fault and access the acquittal through Jesus, the righteous one, the atoning sacrifice of our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. It's actually too small if we get caught in the microcosm of just this room without applying the acquittal globally. It's incredible. But how will they know how to access it unless we tell them unless we tell them. So we have to get this incredible news out. I'm going to leave you with that thought this morning. We're going to turn to the tables. You're going to have some reflection and discussion. There's going to be a few questions that come up on the screen, I think, to help guide you with your discretion. What occurred to you from this passage this morning? What's a question it prompted? And what is one thing you can do going forward? So we'll just spend about five minutes and then Pastor Darren Bennell will preach up a storm. Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks to Trish and to Bron, uh, absolute powerhouses. And um, now you get me. So, did you like the clip? You know that guy, Just Love, the Just Love guy, the dog ad? Uh, Bron and I were in Sydney for something a few years back. And we're in Bondi Junction and we're in Woolies or Coles. And uh, Bron comes up to me and shows me the photo. She'd spotted the guy, the love guy, and said, can I have your photo? And I thought, I wonder if Bron is the only person that was excited enough to ask the guy in the dog ad for a photograph opportunity. But she did, and she was excited. Um, so uh, it's got a special place in my heart. Um, just Jesus being who he claimed to be makes the following words more profound than we can grasp. 1 John 2.2, 2, Trish referred to it. He, Jesus, or he meaning Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the whole world, or for the sins of the whole world. If you think about, if you, if you think about everyone you've ever met um, right across history in this room, you know, as talented as Jules Coleman is, if I was going to put one person in charge to set the world right, it's not Jules. It's definitely not Lukey, and it's not me either. And when I think about history, I think, <laughs> Nell Burton put her hand up for the job. <laughs> I think the word that we would use, Nell, is interesting. <laughs> so, um, but even across history, you know, the great leaders of time, uh, there's no one beyond Jesus that even stands close. I think even people who don't believe in Jesus if they would step back and look across history and go, we need to put someone in charge right now. I think Jesus would, head and shoulders, above anybody who's ever walked the earth, be the person that humanity would look to, whether they agree with him or not, and say, he's the one for the job. And so Jesus, the scripture says, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. And so when Jesus actually did walk the earth to set it right, the thing that he did do was not change government or wheel political influence, but he started at the heart of it. He started with the sin issue that humanity doesn't like in our age to talk about. But it's real. And if we're honest, we know it. I don't have to look far back in my life to acknowledge that, hey, it's there. It's in the mix. Sometimes it's at the fore. It's always on the fringes. Uh, looking to take opportunity in my life, that's for sure. And so he comes along, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
And so I want to look at this today and help us with it on Monday. Here are the four things I want to do in 12 minutes and 23 seconds. How significant this statement is. Trish kind of got us there, I think. Number two, that's number one. Number two, how we right-size this in our lives. How do we do that? Number three, where am I personally at in response to this? And number four, what will I do next with it? Um, if, if you think about this statement, it is, and Jesus being who he said he is, and he being that one, this is as big as it gets in this life. This statement right here is singularly as big as it gets, that he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. So how significant is the statement? Trish really took us there, so I'm not going to spend much time on it. But the reality is that he came into the world, he died on a cross, a Roman cross, a a, um, a criminal's death to make things right between us and God. Jesus took our place in every way. He was forsaken that we'd be forgiven. He took the punishment that we might have peace. He was cursed that we'd be blessed. He died in this life so we could live in the next. He took upon him what was due us and we could just go on and on and on in terms of the significance of what he did. And so how significant do you see that in your life? How, how significant is it? The death of Jesus for the sins of humanity, for yours in particular, for mine as well. How significant is it? And then number two, because it sort of leads into it, how, how, how are we going to right-size this in our lives? Is it right-sized in our lives? Maybe you're already there. Maybe you're all over it. Um, I don't know if we've got the image, Belzy, from the, uh, the plane, but um, if we have, I, I catch, well, under COVID conditions, I never catch planes, but routinely I catch planes a lot, and they're, they're helpful to me. And they're helpful to me in this regard. I don't need it, sweetie, don't worry. If you're wondering why I'm calling a young woman sweetie, it's because of my daughter, if you're visiting. I just realise that sometimes that could get lost. Um, planes, yes. They, you know, you can, I can get in the plane in Tamworth and take off with all sorts of things rattling around in my mind. But almost like clockwork, once you get high enough that I can't see anything much except tiny little dots below, it changes your perspective very, very quickly. It right-sizes my world. Um, if I'm not catching planes, I'll just drive to the lookout. If I feel like my brain is just getting way too cluttered, I'll drive to the lookout and then I climb down into this spot and I can look out over Tamworth. And as you see, all the homes, it reminds me that there's all sorts of things going on in every home. It's chaos and peace and blessing and love and dysfunction and everything that's in the mix. And it reminds me that my life and even what we do here as I look out and try and locate these buildings, which feel like a big group of spaces, you know, when I'm standing in them, like, God, look what you've done. But then when I go to the lookout, I'm reminded of our small fit footprint in a small town, in a small nation, at the ends of the world, in a small little globe in the Milky Way galaxy that when you step back from it is nothing more than a dust particle in the Milky Way galaxy, which is one of billions of galaxies in God's known universe. And I get some perspective. I'm able to right-size everything. And yet, in the midst of that right-sizing my place and your place and our place in the world, God says it was for you that I sent my son. And he brings us back into the center of the frame and says, all of it is about this getting done, about you, about you in particular, about me in particular. And what an incredible story it is. 
And so when I think about my life and when I zoom out a little bit, and when you think about yours and you read these verses, he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but the sins of the whole world. Have you right-sized that? Have you right-sized that in terms of its place in your life? And is there an adjustment to make? Here's how I wrote it down. How right-sized is this in its place and purpose in my life? And is there an adjustment that I need to make? How about you? Number three, where am I personally at in response to this? Uh, Does anyone know Bob Goff? Anyone? Bob Goff. I feel like Bob Goff's the closest thing I've ever met to Jesus. Actually, I haven't met him. I've only listened to him. Bob Goff is um, a freakish human. He uh, owned a a, um, a law practice. And one day he walked in, top floor of a large building. You get the idea, corner window, staff everywhere. He walked in, said, I'm done here. Handed the keys to the next guy and said, the business is yours. You can have it for free. Like, it's the kind of Christian guy we're talking about. He, he started schools for girls in countries where they can't be educated, taken his money and poured it into their sales from his books. He pours it into teaching Afghani girls how to read. He goes into places like Nigeria uh, and does all sorts of things. The guy is a freak of nature. He, he made this statement um, about working out um, where I'm at. He says this, think biography, not geography. And I like that idea. I like the idea of coming to this statement of, about Jesus and the atonement and where it's at in my life and going, let me think biography, biography for a minute. Like, where, where's my story actually up to as it relates to this big idea at the centre of all of what God's doing? So, so wh- wh- how would the biography read for you? I actually um, took a moment this morning to look up BuzzFeed to try and find some sensational headlines but it was all too much for me to take in on a Sunday morning. I felt like I needed to repent just by looking at the front page. But um, where's your life? What type of heading would the biography have right now in terms of this idea of Jesus' mission upon the earth? Has it changed me and am I changing? Would that be it? Would the heading of this chapter be off track? Would it be I'm back? I like that one. Thought of it myself. Doing my thing in hot pursuit of God. On mission with God's message. What, what, what would be the headline of the chapter? Where are you at? And as it relates to this passage, where would you say you are at right now? Can you locate yourself? Um, John, 1 John gives us some places where people are. Verse 8. Uh, verse, is it verse 8? It says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Number one place he identifies is they're just not there. Or, you know, you might say, I'm not there yet. Someone might push back and go, I'm not going there anytime soon, and nor was I. So I have great hope for all of us. I'm not there as that we are as it relates to this statement. Number two in verse, um, I've called them both verse, both eight in my notes. So clearly they're not both verse eight. In fact, I think they're verse six, is six and nine, if you are taking notes. If we say that we have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. That's a big statement. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. And we do not live out the truth, or in this version here, the truth is not in me. That's a big statement. And 
John um, is, or the, the author is writing, and he's saying, hey, in relation to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, you can be a person who's just not there yet. You've gone, oh, I don't have sin, or maybe I know I have sin, but I'm not there yet. We can be the person who says, yeah, I'm absolutely there. But the Bible comes along really emphatically, says you can say you're there, but hey, it can all be a lie. You can even deceive yourself. And then there's this third place, and I like the third one, James 2, uh, sorry, um, 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ. His son cleanses us from all sins. And so there's those who are not there yet. There are those who are walking in darkness, claiming to be in light, uh, put it um, believing one way, behaving another. And then there are those who it says they, they love the light. I'm sure it's not without their tension. It's tension because I know my own life. I want to walk in the light, but I struggle with the rest. I'm sure you're probably in the same boat. Looking around the room, I, I know that some of you are definitely in the same boat. You're more in the boat than me. No, I'm <laughs> But we want to live there. And God promises the grace for our struggle, the power to overcome it. And, and then it talks about this. And, and, and this life of living in the light, it's moving to the beat of a different drum. It's walking differently. It's living differently. It's, it, the atmosphere around in the light is different, isn't it? it? Its presence is strong. The presence, his presence seems to be strong in the light. Walking in the light removes us from um, being drawn by him to being led by him. And I love that shift going on in a person's life. There's nothing like the shift from being drawn by God to being led by God in our life. And I, I just reckon I wasted just too many years being drawn, just him having to draw me, him being drawing me closer, drawing me, bumping me this way, bumping me that until I, he got my attention. But ah, oh, the way of living in the light where we are led by him, that's the place to find ourselves. And so where am I at? Am I, uh, am, am I, am I not there yet? Am I believing one way and behaving another? Or am I like, no, I'm, I'm, I want to live in the light. That's where I'm going to live. And so where are you at? Give the significance of it um, and thinking about these things. And then I want to bring you to this last thing and really speak to believers in the room. What am I going to do next with this? What am I going to do with it? Because Jesus said he didn't just die for your sins or mine. He died for the sins of the whole world. And the place God would bring us to is the place where we would live on mission with this message. That's where he would bring us all to. That's what he would have us all about. Um, so I've got um, just a few thoughts, if you're taking notes, just a few thoughts on this as we um, try and land the plane, as they say. Number one, don't live ugly. So my normal way of saying that is live attractively. That's how I actually had that written. And I thought, no, I need to get your attention. I'll go with the negative for the sake of the win. Um, don't live ugly. Don't live ugly. And so... You know, we, we purchased a van, we, we own a, a van. You know, you don't get your license and think, I can't wait to one day own a seven-seater van. That is not your mission in life. But nevertheless, here we are, and our best car is a van. The salesperson who sold it to me, as I was, he said, Darren, if you can get over walking to it, you are going to love this vehicle. <laughs> I don't care enough to actually need to get over walking to it. I, I, don't, I don't know what that says about me. I don't mind the van. I would prefer, I was on my way to get a Prado actually, and, um, and my, I promised this guy I'd, I'd test drive it. And when we got in, Lockie was with me, 
And it was so big in the back, Lockie said, Dad, please tell me we're buying this car. I drove it to the roundabout, back to Woodley's, and we bought it. But I had to get over, or he said I'd have to get over the ugliness. You know, I never want to be the believer who you have to get over to get to Jesus. Don't want to live ugly. In fact, Titus chapter 2 verse 10 tells us, or reminds us, to live in a way that makes the teaching about our God and Saviour attractive. That's number one, don't live ugly. Number two, do extravagant good. Just do extravagant good. I love what John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, said. Do all the good you can by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Just extravagant good. Exceeding expectation. Lacking restraint. And you think about your life, are there places where you lack restraint? There are places where I lack restraint. If someone buys double dip cream in our household, you know the one, the Peel Valley, if you haven't had it, they'll have it in heaven. And double dip if that's in our house, I'm going to put on weight this week. If there is peanut butter in our cupboards, I'm going to put on weight this week because they are extravagantly good and I am tempted by them. That was not the point. The point was lacking restraint. They, um... And so I think God would have us lack restraint around doing good just to be a bit over the top around that thing. And so number two, number three, um, as we go... Just seed something with harvest potential in people's lives. Whatever that is, just seed something. It's amazing what God takes and what God uses. Just seed something. And then finally today, last thought, just raise the level of risk. And I rate this one for me. Raise the level of risk. I recognise that I've just become too safe as it relates to um, gospel. I'm comfortable. Uh, I've got an advantage or a disadvantage. I'm not sure which one it is, but it opens doors that I'm a pastor. So the conversation ends up at Jesus very quickly, um, awkwardly sometimes. But, so I'm good at that. I'm good at church. I'm good at saying, hey, you should come to church sometime. But, but lay, raising the level of risk for me around the clearly articulated gospel, I need to raise the level of risk. Uh, how about you if you're a believer in Jesus? What does raising the level of risk look like for you given that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but the sins for the whole world? In Jesus' name, amen. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au And thanks again for listening.